Welcome back to I Have to Ask with Elizabeth Hess. Today's guest is Cunningham Township Supervisor Danielle Chenoweth. It is such a pleasure to have you here today, Danielle. Thanks so much, Elizabeth. Township government is often misunderstood. The Cunningham Township encompasses the same boundaries as the city of Urbana, and you're responsible for issuing general welfare assistance benefits, as well as providing grants to nonprofits serving low-income residents. Okay, so that's the clinical definition of what you do. Tell me about the humanistic side of what you do. Essentially, Cunningham Township is the last safety net for the poorest of the poor in the city of Urbana. When there's no other support, that's township is where people turn. And we have an open door policy. We answer the phone. People walk in every day. We have between 100 and 150 walk-ins every month. How many employees work for you? There's about four of us, including myself. I am so lucky to have a number of interns and volunteers who also support us. You know, Kyle Patterson is the one who kept on me to have you on because he said, you don't understand when you talk to Danielle, your life will change. <laughs> That's very sweet. Yeah, I, I hired Kyle um, at open hiring process with about 60 people who applied and he really rose to the top. Um, Kyle is a great case manager in our office. And your counterpart here in Champaign, Andy Kornstrom, also a huge fan. How clever are you with Andy? Oh, Andy and I work very closely together, and I think it's really important since, you know, we are one community, but we have two different kind of taxing bodies for Champaign-Urbana that we coordinate closely. So actually, we work to try to mirror our programs as much as possible. Also, I think Andy and I, you know, spend a lot of time learning from each other and supporting each other. Now, you've offered the Cunningham Township Board a plan that would bring a woman's shelter to Urbana. You've talked about the desire to partner with Courage Connection as well as local entities. What do you need in order to make this shelter happen and thrive and survive? We have a problem in Champaign County where women and children are the invisible victims of an affordable housing crisis that's very deep and very profound. So we recently did, our office did a study of poverty in Urbana, and we actually uh, excluded ages 18 to 25 in part because that age group oftentimes is a student population and that students who also are poor and there is actually a... um, Uh, there's a crisis of students in college uh, going hungry right now, so you can look that that piece up. But if we exclude that population for the moment, Urbana is poorer. Our five-year-olds and under are poorer. Our 18-year-olds and under are poorer. Our folks who are 25 to 65 are poorer than Champaign, than Lafayette, than Bloomington, than Normal, or than the national average. We have a situation where in Champaign County, you have to work two jobs to be able to pay rent and utilities in this community and not be vulnerable for eviction or homelessness. Our situation is that um, essentially we have in Champaign, over 70% of renters are housing insecure which means they pay more than one-third of their income in rent. That's a federal definition. In Urbana, it's closer to about 60 to 65%. What's interesting is that we basically have a population, for the county, it's about two-thirds. Two-thirds of our population in the community are really paying more for rent than they need to to be secure, which means they can't save. And what that means is that when something happens, because almost everyone in Champaign County works, and I just want to be clear about that. If you see men coming out of the Time Center, now called Phoenix, almost all of those men work. If you see people coming out of the township, almost all of them have some kind of employment. But the issue is they don't have enough hours, the wage is not high enough, 
And essentially, they're moving oftentimes from place to place and they can't save. So if something happens and they have a family member they have to take care of, they have a sick kid, they get sick. So you got a situation where you really have to be very, it's, you're very close to the bone. And as soon as you have an unexpected thing come up, you don't have any savings to cover it. What we do, and we've helped uh, about 400 individuals in, at the township um, either stay in housing, we call that event eviction prevention, or to get into housing because they're homeless. 75% of the adults that we have supported are women around housing. Over half of the people that we have supported in housing are children, over 100 children in a year. I was going to ask you about that because I had that stat. Why is the population you serve predominantly women? I don't quite know. Now I'm speaking about homeless assistance. We have several different programs. We have a general assistance program, which tends to be a pretty even balance, slightly more male. And it's almost all single folks who are homeless or near homeless who do not have income. So they may be between jobs or more likely they are disabled awaiting disability payments, which can take two to three years. So you physically cannot work, but you have no income coming in. And we provide a very small support that if you're lucky enough to have someone allow you to live with them, we provide enough so you can buy toilet paper and toothpaste and things like that. And then your food stamps get you your food and Medicaid covers your medical and you hold on for dear life for two to three years. And if you don't die, you might get on social security and be able to still not afford an apartment in Champaign County, but maybe be able to be a roommate with someone. So with women, I think the issue, and this is Danielle speaking from two years of experience, which is not a lot of being a township supervisor. Although I will say that my family and my, uh, since a very, uh, at a very young age, our home was a homeless shelter and my parents helped to start the Catholic worker house in Gatesville. And so from a very young age, we've always had people living with us. My home is a place where people come. I now have four people living with me who would have been homeless had they not been uh, had a place to stay. So I have some personal experience with it too, but I would like to say that uh, my sense is that women, because they earn less than men, because they can be impregnated, oftentimes against their own will, oftentimes at a very young age, and we should talk about that, we have children in this community, 11 and 12 years old, who are pregnant. But I think that because they're in such precarious situations, they are couch surfing or, as we find more often, trading their bodies for a place to stay with their children. Sometimes sometimes their children have other places to be. And they are invisible because if they become visible, their children would be taken away from them. And can you imagine anything worse, Elizabeth? I certainly can't for myself as someone who has a seven-year-old. I, cannot, I would rather you cut my right arm off then take my child from me. I cannot imagine anything worse. Now you've thrown my entire concentration with the thought of an 11 and 12 year old pregnant people, obviously against their will because they're minors. It's always against their will. So the evangelicals that say you can't take a life once you get pregnant, are we also on the other end once we're making these young ladies have these babies? Are we not stepping up and helping them on the other side of that? Exactly. So I, I serve on the public health board and what I've requested the board do, and so that staff are working on this, is to produce a report because we have the birth certificates of every single person in Champaign County. We know how old they were when they gave birth. 
And we can look at how old they were when they conceived, which is approximately nine months before the time they gave birth. So what I've asked is to compile a report of how many people, and I'm particularly interested in under the age of consent in Illinois, 17 years of age. I'm interested in for, ki for kids, young girls, under the age of 17, how many folks were impregnated in what years at the age of 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16? And what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to show that rape, incest, sexual assault, and abuse, which is endemic in our society, one in three women will be raped in their lifetime in Champaign County, in Urbana, in Champaign, in the nation. So this is, a, this is like before we invented the concept of terrorist, we should have really looked at why so many girls are being raped and why, what we can do about it. So we have a situation. What I saw of the women who were coming in is I started to look at their ages and how many children they had and the ages of their children. And what I noticed was that many of them were having children, their first child at such a young age that it could only be an adult male in that household who has access to that house or because they are homeless, they ended up being assaulted. Over 90% of women and girls who are homeless, uh, street homeless, are assaulted. Okay, so it's, it's almost near total. So we have a situation where if we don't take care of kids when they're homeless, or if we don't protect girls from rape, and then they're essentially forced to reproduce, and then they come to my office later and are, show up homeless, and I can see, once I started putting this together, how many, and hopefully in the county we'll have some data soon, then I ask this community, is this the same face of homelessness that you thought you had just yesterday? Is it really the drunk man on the street who also needs support because alcoholism is a mental health and a public health issue, right? But that's the picture that we have. But the issue actually is that these are folks who are victimized at a very young age. Their level of trauma runs so deep and that it isn't just about housing. Although, as we know, you can't fix any other problem till you give somebody a home. That's the housing first model. It's proven, it's understood, the nation understands this, and yet we still, as a nation, only house one-third of the folks who need housing subsidies. So what happens with the two-thirds? I serve on the Housing Authority Board as well, right? The Housing Authority is charged with millions of dollars coming in each year to house people. And so we are looking at who are the most vulnerable folks in our community. And instead of having these two and three year long wait lists where you've got folks being assaulted during that time and, and trading their bodies for a place to stay, maybe we should provide a more dramatic intervention sooner. If we don't hear from the people who have been through it, we're gonna create false solutions that don't necessarily, may work for us, me as a middle-class white woman who has never experienced hunger. I've lived with people who experienced hunger, but I have never personally experienced hunger. So it's the folks who have, who really need to be part of the solution, but they've been pushed so far out of the conversation, we don't even ask them questions anymore. And they're so afraid they're gonna lose their reputation, their babies, their jobs, that they don't feel like they can speak. So we have got to go to where the silences are, as Amy Goodman says, of democracy. Now, we have got to go. This is why it's so important that you're asking these questions and that you're bringing folks in to have these conversations, because this is the true meaning of journalism, is we got to tell these stories, and we got to stop having this idea that, you know, 
women who are in this situation got themselves into it because you cannot tell me that a girl who was raped by her father at the age of 11 and conceived children and now has five and is in my office looking for housing is fully responsible for that situation. Let's back up and talk about the process. Let's say in the past, the model used by Township, See You at Home, and others was to move homeless people from the streets with transitional housing till they could find permanent housing. You said the township's goal is to house people within 30 days. Tell me about the process that has to happen to make that a realistic goal. So I can talk a little bit about the project and I can talk about the process. So that was the problem. I tried to illustrate the problem. The, what we're doing now is I want folks first to understand because everyone I talked to, let me say, I was at the Rotary Club the other day, Urbana Rotary Club. We have like seven in this town. And I'm hanging out with them. And it's like the head of the schools, the head of uh, the county, the head of the library, right? It's all these influencers and decision makers. So I had a PowerPoint. I got up there and I looked out at the audience and I saw people I've known for a long time who I care about and love. And I said, you know, I have a PowerPoint for you. But if I give you this PowerPoint about homelessness and the need for housing for women and children, you're going to think that someone is taking care of this problem. But you all are the people who could actually take care of this problem. So I just scrapped my PowerPoint. And I said, I had a woman with three children come in the other day with no place to stay. And I want you to be me. And I want you to tell me, in this county, you all are the leaders. What should I tell this woman? So I had hands go up. I had one hand go up and say, crisis nursery. I said, crisis nursery is wonderful. She has one child who's under six. That, per- that child can stay at crisis nursery for some nights, but she and her other children will have to stay in the car outside. Another hand goes up, courage connection. Courage Connection does amazing work. If you are actively fleeing domestic violence, which is a very specific situation, you may stay in emergency shelter for up to 30 days with some potential renewals. Many women are not in that situation. So then another hand goes up and they're like, emergency family shelter. And I said, great, we got eight units for the entire county and it takes two months to get into. So it's not emergency shelter. You have to go through an assessment process where you have to show up at one of three places during the week. And if you're the lucky 50% who get in to be assessed, then you might get a chance to wait for two months and get into housing for your family. But if you're not the lucky 50%, then you have to come back and it's first come, first serve. They'll never make an appointment with you. So their jaws dropped. We talked about regional office of education. They do do up to three days, sometimes a little longer, six days. And they're super, they'll do a hotel, but three days. All you got is time to call your family members and see if you can find a place to live or find a hookup, right? Which is terrible. So I wanted to just give a sense of that is what the solution looks like in our community. And it is totally inadequate. So we got the problem. We got the solution. Now let's talk about this model. So I appreciate all of these organizations, but there's a lot of holes in them. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to build an emergency shelter, same day shelter for women, women and children, and transgendered individuals who have no place to go. Now, you may ask, why is she throwing in that transgender individuals? What's, what's that about? I'll tell you something. You remember the coldest day of the year that we've had? Mm-hmm. It's the coldest winter. That night was the night in the point in time counts when volunteers, including folks from my office, go out and try to find homeless people on the street to count. 
We also count everyone in the shelters to the extent to which we have shelters. And we send those numbers to the feds to show in the middle of the winter, what does our point in time count look like? Usually we find eight, 10 people out, right? Maybe 12. This was the coldest night. So we did not find anyone except two. There were two people who were sleeping outside on the coldest night. One of them was transgendered. There's no place for that person to go. So when I say transgendered, I just want to be clear that this is something that happened this last month. I'm not like making up, oh, well, I'm all pro-trans and therefore we need to take care. Like this is real. It just happened this month. That was the only person. It was a couple and they wanted to stay together and there was no place for them to go because if you are transgendered and you identify as a woman, you can stay at Austin's place. But this person identified as male. Okay, so it was not an option. They could not stay at the men's shelter. Um, the men's shelter only takes men. And I asked and confirmed this and said, we're to see you at home. Is there a place that this person could go? And there was silence. So I want to be clear that that's the population we're looking at. What we know from the data and the research is that rapid rehousing is the best way to go and that you want to get people in housing first and then you want to provide supportive services over time. So the concept of transitional shelter is really, I would say, out of vogue. And, and so as a result, Courage Connection has lost pretty much all of its funding for transitional shelter. So the three properties at Church Street are not funded except for some local dollars, which is, you know, and the local donors who give very appreciate it, but ultimately it's not a sustainable solution. So I think Courage Connection is going to have to look and see how are they going to deal with this. And a year ago, we talked about, could we use those three properties for emergency shelter? At this point, because there's been some leadership changes at Courage Connection, it doesn't look like right now we're going to move forward with shelter, emergency shelter at that location. And we're also really questioning whether or not group housing is the, is the right way forward. There's a shelter design team that includes a lot of different stakeholders that our office, myself, has convened. And we have met three times. We're having our fourth meeting on Tuesday. And we're basically looking at what are the best practices in trauma-informed, empowering, results-driven sheltering same-day year-round sheltering for women and women with children because a community like ours should build the best. This is the question I want to know from you. You take on the hardest cases, people who have multiple evictions, felony convictions, they're trying to take care of their children. What do you tell them at the darkest moment of their lives that shows them they are not alone and that you want to help them? Well, first off, I would say those are my people. Those are the people I really love and care for. I grew up Catholic and, uh, you know, I moved away from the church because the church did not have a place for me as, uh, as a queer woman. But I am a Quaker at this point. I've joined the Quaker meeting. And I really think that the idea that when you design a system that works for people who are the most vulnerable and when you create relationships, personal relationships and connections with folks who are in the most vulnerable situations, that is when I feel like we can make the smartest systems and be the most human. When folks come into our office, it's interesting because if you walk in the public aid office, you will be met by with a security guard uh, with a gun in his holster. Um, I've been through the public aid office because I've been on food stamps twice. 
The first time was when I moved here. I was estranged from my parents. And the second time was very briefly after I had my child and I needed to not work to pay for him, to, to be able to care for him. And so I got to see a little bit of that experience. And I was shocked at how hostile those spaces were. At Cunningham Township, if you walk in, you are met with a smile. We ask people how you are. We offer coffee and water. The mosque has uh, assembled a many snacks that we provide to our neighbors and friends. And our feeling is this is our neighbor. This is Urbana. We're a small village and these are our people and we're going to take care of each other. So the first thing we do is we just let folks know you matter. We care about you. You've got a place here. We're going to listen to you. And a lot of what we do is we listen to people's stories and we let them talk about what they're going through. But ultimately, I'll tell you time and again, Elizabeth, if you offer somebody some money with a slap in the face, they don't want the money because the dignity is so much more important to them. It's actually more vital to their survival that they experience dignity and respect. So I have people who volunteer in my office who used to be on public aid with our office. You are so incredibly positive, and I'm sure, I mean, thank you, by the way, for serving on CU Public Health. That's one of the agencies that I respect the most. The Housing Authority of Champaign County it was complicated getting you on the board how have you looked past that and just moved forward and just kind of stayed positive? Well, it's really important to be in therapy to work out times when you feel very frustrated and dissed. So I will say thank you to my therapist and thank you to my friends who love me, you know, let me cry. So the issue with the housing authority was difficult because I came back to town after my father had passed away from brain cancer, only to find out that there were people on the housing authority who really didn't want me to be there. I'm used to that because a lot of times I'm a change maker. So if somebody's going to appoint me to a position, as I told Diane, the mayor, when she was thinking of appointing me, I said, don't appoint me if you don't support my agenda. Here's my agenda. And it largely had to do with transparency, access, and getting people into affordable housing and getting Urbana and the housing authority to start communicating again because there was a real break in that relationship. So thankfully, you know, Diane appointed me. She knew what I was going to do, which is I'm going to go in. I'm going to say my piece. I'm going to be honest and forthright. And if you disagree with me, then you, you need to do it to my face. So I think the big issue with housing authority was that people didn't want my influence on, the, on that board, and they weren't willing to really engage me. They tried to use a technicality, which was not legal, to keep me off. And ultimately, I prevailed, and I got on the board. You know, but what I did is I went to the housing authority members, and I said, I want to work with you, and I have an agenda. Yeah, I've got an agenda, you know, and I've written it out, and I can talk to you about it. We've done with the new executive director and some new board members and the board members working together. We've, you know, we launched a reentry program this year. We're going to be able to help get folks who are reentering from prison and jail into some supportive housing and then into some subsidized housing so that they they don't have to reoffend. They've got the basic support so that they can, you know, make their families whole and start building their lives back. And so that happened in as a coordinated effort with that same board that wanted to keep me off just a year ago. So, you know, I like to take lemons and turn into lemonade if I can. Well, Danielle, I have one more question before I'm going to let you go. You've said the happiest day of your life was the day you conceived your son, Ezra. Mm -hmm. As the mother of a young son, what is the most important message you would like to pass on to him? You know, I was a kid who grew up thinking that it was really important to be smart. Because you know how girls are told 
basically by society, you either get to be smart or you get to be pretty. Yeah. So my sister chose pretty and I chose smart. Is funny an option? Because I, I, I'm not yeah. either of the first two. But I got to say, actually, it shouldn't be a choice. You can do it all. Okay. That's what I tell young girls. But so, but I did choose smart and, you know, it was really important for me to achieve academically as a child. What I've come to understand later in life, and it's taken a cancer scare and, you know, losing family members and going through a lot of different things personally, is I realized that what's most important is that we be able to connect with others in an intimate way and that we be able to meet people where they're at and be able to collaborate in solving problems together. The hope, and I tell Ezra this, and he's seven, but he, you know, he was at all the, he was at, visited seven occupies as a child. He was marching in Oakland with the Black Lives Matter protests. He's a kid who loves nature and animals. And I've told him, your generation is up against things that are even far more formidable than my generation has been up against. And so what I need you to do is to be able to connect with people in a real way, not go into the divisiveness where you just discount people and then feel better than them and feel superior, that you actually figure out and humanize your opponent and build bridges and try to solve problems because we have got to solve these problems no matter where you stand. We got to solve these problems together. So that's what I'm hoping for my son is that I teach him some of the basic skills of an organizer and an emotionally connected and empathetic person who can connect with people across a lot of differences so that we can actually make good things happen in the communities that we live. Thank you for listening to Have to Ask with Elizabeth Hess, Danielle Chenoweth, Cunningham Township Supervisor. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Elizabeth.